You're listening to the Kurdistan America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government representation in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Dulavan Barwari. Welcome to the 11th episode of Season 3. In this episode, I have the honor of speaking with Mr. Jonathan Lord, Senior Fellow and Director of Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. He previously served as a professional staff member for the House Armed Services Committee and as the Iraq Country Director in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, as well as a political military analyst at the Department of Defense. We discussed the new government in Baghdad, Erbil-Baghdad relations, the Sinjar Agreement, the role and future of the U.S. in Iraq, as well as security issues impacting Kurdistan, Iraq, and the broader region. He holds an MA in Security Studies from Georgetown University and a BA in International Studies from Vassar College. And now, the interview with Mr. Jonathan Lord. Jonathan, welcome to the Kurdistan in America podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure having you, Jonathan. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time. Other than your current role as a senior fellow and the director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, you were a professional staff member for the House Armed Sur- Services Committee, I believe, and you also served as the country director, Iraq country director, in the office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, and also as a political military analyst in the Department of Defense. So there is a lot that I want to unpack today, given your credentials. And I will begin with Iraq, uh, with Baghdad. Uh, after a, basically a year-long crisis in Iraq manifested by the political paralysis after the elections, Iraq finally has a government headed by Prime Minister Mohammed al-Sudani. Basically, the outrage over corruption is a major driver for popular demands for reform. Now, Will Iraq's new prime minister bring change, or will it be more of the same? Well, Delavan, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you about these issues. Um, The the short answer is uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, The longer answer is uh, there's probably not a lot Mohammed Chia al-Sudani can do to create overarching political reform to tackle corruption in Iraq. Um, the irony about these elections is that you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, there was uh, a movement for reform. There were protesters in the streets, Tishrinis, as they became known, that pushed for uh, massive, massive change. Uh, and obviously, uh, through the course of what was then years of waiting for elections, setting up an election law, having the election, and then an additional year of government formation, the final product that came out um, probably looks uh, a little bit, uh, I would argue, uh, underwhelming to anyone who is closely aligned with the protest movement. Um, Mohammed Shia is, is very much a consensus candidate put together by uh, consensus parties uh, that are not the harbingers of reform. They're very much uh, the uh, on the other side of that issue, largely, they are the old school. They are the entrenched uh, political parties of Iraq. So, I think probably the best we could hope for is uh, Mohammed Sudani is going to focus 
perhaps on reforming uh, a few sectors uh, to deliver better services. I think he needs to show the Iraqi people uh, that he can deliver something. Um, but I wouldn't expect uh, massive, massive reforms. Yeah, well said, actually. Uh, I agree with that. I think massive reform takes a lot of time and uh, requires a strong will and backing. Now let's turn to the KRG-Baghdad relations. There are several key issues that have been contentious uh, between Baghdad and Erbil over the years, which were also the main drivers for the independence referendum. There is the issue of the disputed areas, as stated in uh, outlined in the Iraqi Constitution, Article 140 of the Iraqi Constitution, and the KRG share of the budget and a new federal hydrocarbon law, oil and gas law, basically. And then there is the issue of the Peshmerga forces as part of the Iraq's defense forces and their share of the federal defense budget, as well as equipment and training. Baghdad hasn't fulfilled its its obligations. Now, in your view, what is the best path forward in resolving these issues? Uh, I think dialogue between Baghdad and Erbil is uh, happening now and, and frankly long overdue and uh, probably uh, needs to uh, expand to, a, to, to address a host of issues. Um, ultimately, uh, I think Erbil, Kurds generally have to decide what it is they want out of their political future. I don't think it's necessarily settled. And I don't think at this point, you don't need to have a clear answer other than uh, at this moment, uh, are we part of the Iraqi state? Uh, to what extent are we part of the Iraqi state? And how do we exert influence in the political processes in Baghdad? Uh, the rest will come over time. Um, I think uh, it's it's probably... Uh, an issue that will evolve politically, uh, generationally as well. Uh, much of uh, the Kurdistan leadership comes from a generation where they existed. Their reason for being was to protect Kurds uh, and to resist the political forces of tyrants. Um, I think generation, generationally, we have a moment here where youth are coming up in a world uh, which is much more connected. And there's probably a lot more that connects the youth of Baghdad and Anbar and Basra and Kurdistan uh, than might have been 50, 60 years ago. Um, so ultimately, I think it, it will take time to determine, but um, I do think it is important that for uh, the whole of security, uh, there be uh, a joint security mechanism that closes many of the gaps on the security level that exist geographically uh, between uh, federal Iraq and the Kurdistan region uh, that exists be because of the politics you mentioned, because Article 140 issues have not been resolved. Um, the most important issue right now is not allowing those disputed territories to become safe havens for terrorists and other actors because state forces, whether they be federal Iraqi forces or Peshmerga, are uh, unable to, to close those gaps uh, and, and, you know, create security for the people who live there. So to me, um, that's issue number one. I think there needs to be enough trust uh, among the participants to reach agreement there because nothing else works 
if ISIS has a place to reconstitute and continually threaten uh, both federal Iraq and the Kurdistan region. Very well said. I think you hit the key keyword there. A few keywords, actually. Trust and security issues. Now, I want to highlight the independence referendum, which was a bumpy time in our relationship with the U.S. Sure. First, uh, first, I want to get your opinion, your your views on the independence referendum. Well, Delavan, I, I have to say, um, I, I, I thought it was a huge mistake. <laughs> and that's not just me in hindsight saying it, because at the time, uh, I was in the Pentagon, and uh, I was telling you know friends in the Kurdistan region that this is not the time for this. And even if you believe in the idea of an independent Kurdistan, it didn't make sense to me strategically. Because at that moment, let's roll back the clock. We're looking at 2017. ISIS has just been territorially defeated. Uh, the Peshmerga and the Kurdistan region control, at the end of the conflict, more territory in Iraq than they had perhaps ever before. We were going into a period of elections. 2018 was going to bring about an election. I thought there was an opportunity here for Erbil holding many, many cards to get what it needed from Baghdad. Many of the issues that are outstanding today, we talked about disputed areas, hydrocarbon law, budget allocation. I mean, those were the same issues that were existing just a few years ago. And so it didn't make sense to me how an independence referendum, when the Kurdistan region had so much leverage uh, at the time, how an independence referendum made sense in achieving the Kurdistan regional government's political objectives. Um, for me personally, my advice was and continues to have, you know, w- would have been is to don't pursue the referendum. Instead, prepare yourselves, consolidate among Kurds a position that by when the election occurs, you'll have roughly 50 or 60 Kurds in parliament. And then as part of government formation, you're the crown, you know, you're you're the kingmaker. You you can bestow the crown on the political parties that are going to do business with the Kurdistan region and do things that are in the Kurdistan region's interest. And to me, I think that was a stronger position to negotiate from. And unfortunately, what ended up happening is the referendum became this lightning rod issue in and among itself. It distracted, I think, both Kurds and federal Iraqi leaders uh, and ultimately changed the conversation in a way that wasn't helpful to Kurdish national interests uh, or you know, continue, continuing to, to, to fight ISIS or doing any of the things that were within Kurdish ambition. So... Um, I understood the ambition of it. I understood the cathartic political reflexive desire to pursue it, but I don't think it was the most strategic path that uh, Erbil could have chosen. Okay, well, so there is, there were many drivers, there were many reasons why the KRG uh, decided to hold the independence referendum. Besides the items that I mentioned, was that during the worst time when ISIS came, the, the Iraqi government not only cut the Kurdistan region's share of the budget, but would not even give the Peshmerga forces the, the, the equipment, the military equipment, the weapons that they needed that were given by the coalition forces 
to fight ISIS during the time that ISIS was at our it was inside Kurdistan, not even in our doorsteps. Was it inside Kurdistan in Sinjar, in in the, in the disputed areas, in in uh, Mahmur. So there was, you know, and in total, KRG has recorded this and documented all this. But there were fifty articles of the Iraqi Constitution that were that were violated, or, or some were not implemented. So there were a lot of reasons behind the referendum, and I was one of the people inside Kurdistan region that are actually proponent and actively supporting it. Uh, but that referendum, as I mentioned, uh, was a bumpy time in our relationship with the United States. Now, has that has the U.S. KRG relation, relationship recovered? Oh, I, I think so. Yeah, I think at this point, um, Washington has, has certainly moved on from that time. I, I think uh, Ur- Erbil is, you know, looking ahead as well. I think, you know, having seen Kakmasror and Kaknetravan operate, I think they're looking now towards a future uh, beyond uh, the politics of the referendum. Uh, I think they understand that by working uh, with Baghdad, in Baghdad, uh, by being a player at the table, they're no longer on the menu. And I think that is ultimately the right approach. Uh, and I think Washington supports it. So uh, I have a lot of hope that uh, there's a, a bright future ahead. And in fact, uh, the referendum is, is pretty squarely in the rearview mirror at this point. Okay, now there's the, there's the Sinjar Agreement. And seven years have passed since the liberation of Sinjar, basically, from ISIS. But the Sinjar region is still unstable and is still in ruins. And the agreement is designed for stabilizing the area for the Yazidis to return to their homeland. The KRG is serious about implementing the agreement, but there's a problem with the Iraqi government ordering the militias out of the region uh, in order to normalize the situation or the region. Is there anything that Washington can do on this? So I I think Washington has to take an iterative approach. I mean, I think you nailed nailed it right on the head there with the issue of the militias. Um, That speaks to a larger problem that Baghdad has in that um, of course, there's the Iraqi security forces, the counterterrorism, counterterrorism service, the air force, um, elements of the federal police, uh, which are all answerable to the commander in chief, uh, the prime minister of the country. But of course, there are also elements uh, that have historically operated under the Hashid al-Shabi with one foot and then in the uh, resistance movements with the other foot. And they've enjoyed getting benefits from the state while also acting against the state's interests. And this is a problem. And I think at this point, uh, virtually all Iraqis recognize that the situation is untenable. So I think where the U.S. can be of assistance is helping uh, Iraq consolidate uh, its security sector such that all the forces in Iraq are answerable to Iraq and Iraqi national interests. Um, this is going to be a long-term project. Uh, there are things that uh, the prime minister can do in the short term, but as was proven uh, in the premiership of Mustafa Kadhimi, not even a prime minister is above the fray. Uh, and he himself was targeted for assassination uh, at certain times by uh, the resistance movements. So um, it's a process. But I think step one is uh, bringing uh, U.S. power to assist both federal Iraq and the Kurdistan region to consolidate the security sector 
uh, such that forces are answerable to elected leaders. Uh, and then once that happens, uh, and there's less and less space for militias to operate with their own agendas, I think we'll start to see uh, improvements on the ground. Okay, so now let's turn to the broader role of the U.S. in Kurdistan and Iraq. Given the Iraq, uh, U.S.-Iraq strategic framework agreement that was signed uh, last year, I believe, does the U.S. have any leverage in influencing the new Iraqi government in addressing these issues in Iraq? I, I do believe so if we choose to use it. And I, I don't think the approach should be one of coercion. I think we've tried in the past, you know, previous you know, U.S. administrations have tried to sort of twist individual Iraqi leaders and say, well, you're with us or you're with the other guys. Um, but you should be with us. And if you're not with us, well, then bad things. Um, I think there's a better approach that's ultimately more effective. Uh, you know, when it comes to dealing with the militias, when it comes to dealing with um, elements of the Hashid that are operating under the resistance front, trying to name and shame individuals or call out individual personalities is kind of like stepping into the batter's box in a baseball game against a really good militia pitcher. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense because we're the U.S. We can buy the entire stadium. So between the U.S. and the Western powers that we bring to the table in our coalition, we have a lot to offer Iraq. And Iraqis, of course, know this. So I think it's better that we not get too focused on the personalities and understand that we can control the tectonic plates. We can bring whole of government support to agriculture, to treasury, to tourism, to defense. Uh, we can bring uh, everything. Um, and whether or not you're elected from one party or another, uh, you can't ignore this. So ultimately, I think what happens is Iraqi government formation tends to produce consensus candidates who are acceptable in the middle, acceptable, quote unquote, to East and West. But I think when people rise to that position, they see just what is possible in the U.S.-Iraq relationship and seek stronger relations. And I think we should understand that and also be open to that. We shouldn't fixate on this guy is our friend and this guy, well, he's been cold to us in the past. I think we have to understand that once people are in those roles, they're going to want to work with the U.S. And we should understand what we can bring uh, that would benefit both federal Iraq, the Kurdistan region, and the American people in this relationship. So, um, yeah, I think absolutely we should work with this government. We have leverage. Uh, but more than that, we have things that we can offer. And those should be very attractive to any Iraqi leader. Very well said. I think a big part of the issue, the, the, the conflict in the region, is that there's a lot of external hands, regional players that are influencing some of these militias and political parties in, inside Iraq. And that requires a holistic approach. It requires bringing maybe the U.S. and coalition forces and other players on the same table to address these. This is very complicated. I don't think we could address this on this podcast. Let's turn to what's going on in, in Russia, Ukraine, which seems to be the top and absolute priority for Washington. But inside Iraq, I think the most important or the top priority for Washington is combating ISIS or fighting ISIS and stabilizing the region. Now, if you were advising President Biden, what would you recommend as 
U.S. strategy in the Middle East and especially in Iraq? Looking first specifically at Iraq, I think for too long, U.S. support to Iraq, the terms of the U.S.-Iraqi relationship have focused uh, almost exclusively on fighting ISIS. And if you look around Iraq at this point, um, ISIS holds no territory. ISIS has been strongly reduced into uh, a, a much smaller threat, uh, which is good. And of course, we shouldn't let our foot off the gas. But what this does is create space and opportunity to us for us to think more broadly about the relationship. So if you think about the conditions under which the U.S. returned to Iraq in 2014-2015 timeframe um, and the government authorities under which it did, it was really all about fighting ISIS. And if you look at the authorities that Congress passed to do that, um, they really were like emergency room medicine. We're going to throw a lot of equipment and training very quickly into the hands of our partners so we can fight ISIS by, with, and through our partners, which made a lot of sense when ISIS was in Tarmia and when they could range Erbil Airport with artillery and we were really in crisis mode. But you know, no one would argue that emergency room medicine is your first go-to in your day-to-day. We want preventative medicine. So what I think the U.S. needs to think about now is how do we fundamentally evolve the relationship so we're thinking about building lasting capacity of our military partners. How do we prevent ISIS from breaking out in the long term? And if and when they do, how do we build resilience into the Peshmerga? How do we build resilience into the CTS and the ISF and, and all the good partners who have built up their capabilities over the course of this campaign? How do we not lose that? I think we need to be rethinking our security assistance and our security cooperation to focus on those lasting capabilities uh, such that uh, the forces remain strong in perpetuity. Uh, other than that, I think we need to be broadening the relationship to focus on other sectors. For too long, it's been focused almost exclusively in our military support. Um, but we do have USAID uh, activities, which can and should be expanded. Uh, I've mentioned uh, activities with Treasury and agriculture. Um, frankly, we're in a position here to be strongly uh, pro-Iraqi, to really be Iraqi nationalists and help both Iraq and the Kurdistan region constitute uh, a strong state that both Iraqis and Kurds can be proud of. Um, I think it's incumbent upon us um, because it's in our interest too. So I would be thinking about reframing the relationship along those terms um, because ultimately it is not in the U.S. interest to walk away. And it's certainly not in the U.S. interest to leave Iraq as it is today, where if ISIS would break out again, um, we would probably have to come back with more forces to fight them. Uh, and if, in fact, it is our priority to focus on blunting Russia's aggression in Ukraine and preventing uh, Chinese aggression against Taiwan, we're not going to have the resources to focus on Iraq. We're going to have to make sure that Iraq can stand up on its own. So that's would be my advice to the president. That would be my approach. Great advice. Now let's move on to the neighboring states, uh, Turkey and Iran's activities in the Kurdistan region. Let's begin with Iran. Uh, I'm sure you've been following Iran. There is a popular multi-ethnic, mainly woman-led protest taking place in Iran. And Tehran has cracked down on the protests, especially in Iraqi Kurd- in Iranian Kurdistan. But there's Iran has also used drone strikes and missile attacks on the Kurdistan region. What's your take on the situation? 
Well, you are you have described the protests perfectly. They are um, multi-ethnic. They expand from the Kurdistan regions of Iran to the Baluch areas, to the Azeris, to Sunnis and Avaz in the south, uh, to Persians throughout uh, Iran. And uh, people are tired. People are tired of living with the oppression of uh, the Iranian state. Um, Iran has sought, first and foremost, to invalidate the meaning and the message and the purpose of these protests by blaming virtually everyone they can who is an outside actor. So they began with the U.S. and the West, and these protests are being fomented by Western intelligence. And then they turned to Saudi Arabia, and in fact, it was the Saudis who were doing this. And now they've landed on the Kurds. Uh, so, of course, this isn't a nationwide movement. This is a couple of Kurds and, uh, you know, secret, secret Iranian Kurds in the Kurdistan region who are fomenting all of this uh, instability in, in Iran. Uh, and so to sell that story uh, back home and abroad, they fire missiles into the Kurdistan region. Uh, that's an easy solution because uh, there's little that the Kurdistan region or federal Iraq can do about that. And uh, they, the tail wags the dog and they can paint a picture that, look, of course, this must be a real threat because we're pursuing all this military activity against it. But uh, in reality, uh, it's very much a show uh, that perpetuates their propaganda, their narrative that these protests are not about uh, Iranian ambitions and Iranian wills and desires. It's about outsiders trying to change Iran. And that's not true. And of course, what's really cynical about these attacks is that uh, they aren't victimless. There are, of course, uh, Kurdish civilians uh, who face the brunt of these missile and rocket attacks who are maimed and killed uh, you know, on, on, the, on the altar of, of the Iranian propaganda machine. So uh, it is cynical, it is destructive, it is otherwise unhelpful. Uh, and it's otherwise uh, ignoring the real plight of the Iranian people who have been not unclear about their problems with their government in Tehran. Now let's turn to Turkey, the other major player in the region. Ankara has been bombarding the Kurdistan region, including occasional airstrikes on Sinjar and the other disputed areas. Turkey has also recently escalated its attacks on Rojava. The Al-Hol camp, which is holding about 50,000 ISIS family members and supporters, was also attacked last week. There's a lot at stake here, and none of us want Turkey's internal issues with its Kurdish population to undermine the war against ISIS and the broader security situation in their area. This conflict between Turkey and the Kurds of Turkey can jeopardize everything in the area. The United States has invested so much in this war. But other than a few statements, Washington appears to be quite passive on this. It would be more pragmatic and less costly to all sides to have a holistic uh, solution to the conflict. The U.S. played a major role in resolving the conflict in Northern Ireland, and the NRA was also a terrorist organization. U.K. was a NATO member as well. The United States played a major role in resolving the issue. Do you think that model is possible for the conflict in Turkey? I do. I, th I think not only is it possible, I think it's well within all our interests to pursue it. Uh, ultimately, um, unfortunately, when, it, when a foreign country does something 
that the U.S. doesn't like and that country happens to be an ally, a partner, I think there tends to be a reflexive uh, reaction here in Washington where we immediately say we need to reevaluate the relationship and we seek to coerce them or constrain them into doing things that we want. Um, I don't think that's particularly productive if you look at past experience. I don't think it's been all that effective. I think Ankara clearly has legitimate security concerns with the PKK. Um, We are in a position to help address those. Um, We could help return to a stasis that is not unprecedented. There had been a ceasefire between PKK and Turkey historically that lasted years. That would absolutely be in the interest of our partners in Syria, who could then get back to worrying about ISIS. It would certainly help uh, reduce the tensions in the Kurdistan region of Iraq uh, and help strengthen uh, the state, uh, both Erbil and Baghdad, in dealing with its neighbors. And two, it would reduce uh, a destabilizing threat in southern Turkey as well. What I think might make this a little bit difficult is that it is not just a security issue in Turkey. It's very clear that uh, President Erdogan has used this issue um, as a rally around the flag, as a political uh, momentum builder for his own um, political career. Um, and so that's that's challenging. I mean, he was just at an AKP rally recently, almost gloating about Operation Claw Sword and uh, the the ground invasion that would come when he felt it, it was good and ready. Uh, and that's deeply disturbing. Um, you know, the situation shouldn't be politicized by anyone. Uh, but I do think that we would be best served in Washington and certainly our partners in Iraq and in Syria by coming proactively to Turkey. Perhaps we can't be in the lead. Perhaps we're, we're, we're the inappropriate ones, but certainly us or our, someone in our coalition uh, would be well suited to sit down at the table between PKK, between Turkey, and try to restore uh, a ceasefire for all our benefit. Uh, I think it's it's long overdue, uh, and I think now is the moment to do it. Well said. Now, looking at the broader picture, again, the U.S. has invested heavily in Iraq and Syria, both in blood and treasure, but several polls indicate that public opinion, the American people basically, are tired of endless wars in the Middle East. And of course, this has empowered the isolationist camp in the U.S. And the current, the ongoing war in Ukraine and the Taiwan crisis have also con- uh, contributed to this phenomena. Uh, do you think public opinion coupled with pressure from Turkey and Iran and, and the conflict in Ukraine will eventually influence the U.S. government to withdraw troops from Iraq and Syria? It's possible, but I don't see it coming for some time. That said, uh, I don't think we should sit around doing what we're doing, waiting for that day to come. Um, I think if the model in Afghanistan is uh, at all instructive, uh, time is not on our side. We need to be working proactively with the forces that we have in the region, with the resources we have at our disposal, thanks to Congress, to build lasting capability. I don't think the solution is to keep U.S. forces in the region indefinitely. I think strategically the objective needs to be getting to a place 
where our partners are able to manage their own security uh, security files with support from the U.S., but without continued U.S. military presence. That should be the goal. And ultimately, everything that we are doing needs to be in service of that goal. Um, and we should act with a degree of urgency and haste, because in a, in a democratic republic like ours, uh, sometimes things can move quickly. And just as we saw in Afghanistan, ultimately, political decisions can be made uh, that can force change quite rapidly. And so already in the past, we have seen from certain congressional members um, messaging in the form of amendments to the NDAA, um, as well as just political speeches uh, against the continued U.S. military presence in the region, specifically Syria, uh, but also to Iraq uh, to, to an extent. Um, so the the political narrative is out there. Um, I think we should respect that it's out there and work very quickly and diligently to reach our objectives before the day comes that forces are ripped out in an unstrategic way that then causes us to fall backwards. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Resolving the issues in the region would be priority because if ISIS or another group like ISIS rises again, then the U.S. will be forced to come back again. Now let's turn to you. Tell us about Tell us a bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I was originally uh, born in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and my father, uh, may he rest in peace, was a chemistry teacher for 30 years in the New York City school system. And at a certain point, uh, he decided when he retired, he wanted to be a vegetable farmer. And so when he retired, uh, we moved upstate to a small vegetable farm uh, in upstate New York. And so from the age of six on, that's where I grew up. Oh, very interesting. Now, where can people go to learn more about you? Uh, well, uh, you can go to uh, www.cnas.org. Uh, that's the Center for New American Security. I'm the senior fellow and director of the Middle East Security Program there uh, since July. So uh, we've reconstituted a new Middle East Security Program at CNAS. We're building it out. Uh, and so all of our events, our reports, uh, our uh, public press uh, will all be located there, uh, as well as my bio. So, uh, yeah. Great. Thanks for sharing. Uh, now, finally, when was the first time you heard about Kurds or Kurdistan? Jeez. Oh, gosh. Um, man, um, it was many years ago. I was working with someone and... Uh, her boyfriend uh, was Kurdish, and I didn't know what that was. This was many, many <laughs> years ago, obviously. Um, and so I met him and uh, learned all about Kurdistan uh, back then. And little did I know that years later, I would work for the U.S. government uh, on issues related to Iraq, where I would uh, have the pleasure and opportunity to meet so many Kurds and Kurdish leaders uh, in my time in service. Uh, so I never knew how important uh, the Kurdistan region would become in my professional career and my personal life as well. Um, as many of my uh, professional friends here in Washington, uh, I count you among them, Delavan. Uh, I appreciate Kurds. it. Likewise. So, Thank uh, you. Yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, and I, I like to think uh, that my there, there's always something new to learn about the Kurdistan region culturally. Um, as well as politically. So for me, I always love to sit down with Kurdish friends and, and get their take and, and better understand the region.
Have you ever visited Kurdistan? I have. I have a few times, thankfully. I've, I, I've not yet done it as a private citizen. I've only done it in uh, my, my government career. Uh, but I am hoping uh, to come visit early next year, finally, as a private citizen. Um, so that is my plan. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I've had the pleasure of meeting uh, senior uh, leaders of the Kurdistan regional government and uh, meeting uh, just your everyday common Kurds. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to spending some time with the latter. So, <laughs> Excellent. I'll give you an advice. Visit Kurdistan during Nowruz time, March. That's exactly my plan. That's exactly my plan. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government representation in Washington, D.C. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast either on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google. Also, for more information about the Kurdistan region, please visit our website at www.us.gov.krd or follow us on Twitter at krg_usa. USA.